Well, good morning again. If you turn to that passage from John's Gospel, John chapter 3, that's where I'll be working from this morning. If I find the page number, I'll get it for you. Thank you, you're faster than I am. It's like bingo, isn't it? (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you promised to hear the prayers of your people and so we ask you that you would be at work in us this morning to hear your word, lighten the darkness of our hearts that we might see the glory of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, and through what we do today in hearing your word and the other conversations that we have, equip us for the life that you have before us. Amen. I mentioned before that our world is changing and so I'm very keen to understand our world and help our clergy to minister in that world even better. So I spend a fair bit of time looking at what people are reading, what's influencing them. So I I check out what's happening, what people are watching on the television. Now, of course, these are Olympics fortnight, so it'll be different at the moment. But generally, there are three areas that people uh, look at on the television. Uh, The first one is renovation programs. The second one is cooking shows and the third one are stories about people like Molly Meldrum or Kerry Packer, those those sorts of stories. I then check the internet as well and there's two things that really stand out in the internet. The first one is cooking recipes because no one reads their cookbooks anymore, they just go and get the recipe, is that you? Get, Get the recipe online. And the second one is social media. And I also check the books out. I know not many people read books anymore, but in the world of books, it's the same two things. It's cookbooks, because that's what you're going to get on Mother's Day. And uh, and the second second thing is autobiographies. And so I started thinking about why would somebody write an autobiography? Because you'd have to think you were special. You'd have to have tickets on yourself, wouldn't you, to write an autobiography, to write something that you think people are going to take the time to read and willing to pay for the privilege of reading about you. And so I've investigated that a little bit about who would write autobiographies. So I found an autobiography by Ashley Simpson. Do you know who she is? Some of you do. Jessica Simpson's sister. That's what she's famous for, being Jessica Simpson's sister. And I don't even know who Jessica Simpson is. (laughs) Now, what about another one then? The man's name is Christopher Giccioni. That stumped you, hasn't it? Madonna's brother. (laughs) Now, we laugh at that because that is the only reason that people pay attention to them. It's so sad in some ways that your whole life is summed up by who your sibling is. But at least they get published. Who would ever read your autobiography? When that reality... The reality that why would someone bother with me really hits home, I can actually see the temptation to exaggerate, to massage the truth, to spruce up the part that you play in things, because we actually want the world to pay attention to us. You actually see that in Spike Milligan, you know, the Australian who went off to England, a uh, uh, brilliant manic depressive, great, uh, great sense of humour. He wrote six autobiographies. The first one was Adolf Hitler. My part in his downfall. (laughs) 
followed by his second autobiography, Monty, that is Field Marshal Montgomery, Monty, his part in my victory. Because for Spike Milligan, the whole of the Second World War and all of the main players in it were all about him. That's what it's like. Autobiographies tell you about what's important to you and what other people think should be important about you. I read the autobiography of Michael Hussey. Now, they called him Mr Cricket, and we certainly need him at the moment in Sri Lanka. Um, but when he was growing up, he was smaller than all of the other kids, and he said he had to work twice as hard as everybody else just to, just to perform, just to be as good as them. And as you read the autobiography, every page you turn is just excruciating because it's all about him never, ever in his whole life feeling good enough or capable enough. You know, when he saved Australia time after time, he always thought he was going to be dropped for the next test. That's just the way he was. So what would the autobiography that you write about yourself tell the rest of us about what you think is important? Now, I assume that because you're here at St Stephen's this morning, you think Jesus is important. And I think and hope that you've made your life decisions because of that, that your story only matters because of him. But how does your story unfold? How do you both big-note Jesus at the same time as deal with the competing interests that you have, like your successes, your concerns, the ministries that you're involved in? That is, how do you fit Jesus in with you? As we listen to this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3 this morning, we're challenged by those very issues... How do you fit yourself in with Jesus? Now, John 3, of course, is the most famous chapter of the Bible because it contains the most famous verse of the Bible. I haven't been watching the Olympics very much this, uh, this year, but, you know, at the Olympics they always have uh, people holding up those signs, John 3, 16, everywhere. Have, has, that, has that happened at all this time? No, I gave it to my daughter as her task to watch for that and she said she couldn't find it anywhere. Um, but be that as it may, it still is the most famous verse of the Bible. I think the way that John chapter 3 works is the verses 1 to 15 is an interaction between Jesus and this man named Nicodemus. And then in, chapter, in verses 16 to 21, I think we get John's reflections on what has happened with Jesus and Nicodemus as he sums it up. And so we meet Nicodemus as John chapter 3 opens, and he's the sort of man that you would write a biography about. If he wrote an autobiography, it would actually sell. Hear about him in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus, Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the signs that you're doing if God weren't with him. So here he is, he's a Pharisee. Now, often we are used to booing when we hear the word Pharisee, but don't do that. The Pharisees were middle class. They were very keen to keep the smallest of the laws of Israel. They were keen to see the glory and name of God furthered. He was, and what they did was they taught the people about how to honour God. They were very religious people. But Nicodemus is not just a Pharisee. He's not even just middle class. He is a ruler of the Jews. He's a powerful man in a powerful position and yet he desires to honour God. We've had our federal election not long ago. If only we had people like that who are upright and full of integrity. That's what Nicodemus is like. And he comes to Jesus at night. 
In the ancient world, you don't do things by night because it is very, very dark. Imagine if there's a power failure here in Willoughby. The street lighting is off. No one has lightings in, lighting in their houses. It's really dark. Would you walk through the streets in that sort of setting? Of course not, because nothing, nothing can protect you. So why does Nicodemus come to Jesus by night? It could be that he was scared of what people would think with him meeting up with Jesus. But I don't think that's the case because in John's Gospel, the idea of darkness and of night is tied up with ignorance and not knowing. So even though this man is a teacher of Israel, he's in darkness, he's ignorant of those important things that he should know about. I think that's what's going on. But as we get to the end of verse 2, we see this powerful religious man who would have been very, very well respected by his community, coming to Jesus and calling him rabbi. Rabbi, the Jewish word for respected teacher. You see, even though he is so respected as Nicodemus, he treats Jesus as more important than himself. Than himself. That really does scream very loudly to a person who's in Nicodemus's position. Because Nicodemus knows that Jesus is a teacher but not just a teacher, a teacher who's come from God because of the signs that he had done, the things he had done were signs that God was with him. And so what you've got here in these first couple of verses is a powerful man meets a great and powerful teacher seeking a relationship with him and a relationship that puts Nicodemus in the unfamiliar, inferior position. So what do you reckon Jesus is going to do as Nicodemus comes to him with those sorts of accolades? Well, he doesn't respond to rabbi. He doesn't respond to sent by God. Look at verse 3. Jesus replied, Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And you think, whoa, where did that come from? What's all this born again? And I didn't ask anything about kingdoms. I tell you what, Jesus knows how to put people off, doesn't he? Born again. Born again is such a common word in our world, isn't it? There are people that are claiming Donald Trump is born again. <laughs> there are people saying Hillary Clinton's born again. I don't, I don't know where their state is, but you've got to be a born again Christian in order to become President of the United States. We have born again everything around here, though, don't we? We've got born again environmentalists, born again sensitive people, born again this, born again that, born, 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 born again. And the trouble with born again, though, because it's so common in our world, is it loses its shockingness and marvellousness. Because birth, I was going to say, is one of the most remarkable, it's not one of the most, it's the most remarkable thing that happens in our world. As you hold a baby in your hands, you hold something that didn't exist nine months ago. Just 46 chromosomes that came together. And now you hold a living, breathing entity that bears similarity to the mother and the father or maybe a bit of a mix so you can't tell, all that sort of thing. But it's an amazing thing, isn't it, birth? And Jesus takes that symbol of the most amazing thing that can ever happen to a human being and says you must be born again or born from above. He takes that image of the most amazing event and says once isn't enough. It must happen again. And unless it happens again, neither Nicodemus nor anyone has any hope of even glimpsing the kingdom of God, which is heaven. Unless you are born again, 
you have no hope of eternity, no hope of enjoying God, no hope unless you are born again, no matter how successful you have been. You see what Jesus has done just in this little sentence. He has moved Nicodemus away from just mere contact with the teacher that's been sent by God to the very threshold of how to enjoy eternity. But poor Nicodemus, what Jesus has just said to him is so massive. Jesus is talking about what every God-loving person desires, that is, to enjoy heaven. But what does he mean by it? What does he mean by being born again? And so Nicodemus asks, verse 4, How can someone be born again when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. That's a fair enough response, isn't it? I weigh twice as much as my mother did. How could I possibly return to her womb? This is nonsense, Jesus. What do you mean by it? And again, Jesus ignores Nicodemus' question. He doesn't give an answer to the question. He gives an even more perplexing statement. Verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. And what's going on here? Being born again is hard enough to understand. What do you mean by being born of water and the Spirit? I'll tell you what most of you probably think uh, by being born of water and the Spirit, because it's what I thought as well. And that is being born of water, that's coming through amniotic fluid and that sort of stuff, being born the first time. Being born by the Spirit is that great work of God where he chooses to make us his own, to make us children of eternity, make us brothers of Jesus and sons of God. That's what I've thought being born of water and the Spirit is. Is that what you think? I I did too, except for the passage that was read to us first of all, Ezekiel chapter 36. Where in Ezekiel chapter 36, the nation of Israel, under the judgment of God, are described like being a valley of dry bones, all dead, all, in fact, not even rotted, just all there is is bones. And God is going to come and do an amazing new thing with them. And the way it's described in verses 25 and 26 is I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean from all of your uncleanness. Hear the water? And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. See that what the Old Testament is promising is those two things will come together. The day when God works in you, you'll be washed clean water and I'll put my spirit in you. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here, being born again is all about being washed clean. Those things that we have done wrong never ever being held against you because they are washed away and forgiven. And the new spirit, we have a harder stone that lives for our comfort, our ease, lives for us. And the promise here is God is going to rip that harder stone out and give us a harder flesh that pumps for him, pumps that he might be glorified and that's what we seek in the way that we will serve and love and care for other people. That's the work of the spirit. And Jesus is saying, that is what you need in order to be born again, being washed clean, being changed by being given a new spirit. That's the only way to see the kingdom of God. But that's the problem. How do you get born of water and the spirit? I can wash myself, we all wash ourselves. Can't wash the stain away, can you? The guilt away. And how can you possibly be born of the spirit? 
And so verses 6 to 8, Jesus fills it out a little bit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How do you get washed clean? How do you get the spirit? It is just like the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't contribute to it. You can't bring the wind about. When my older daughter was really young, she used to try and catch the wind. So she'd run around out the back trying to catch the wind. And of course you can't, can you? Because you have no control over it. You can't contain it. And that's what it's like with the Spirit of God. You see, this Pharisee, this man Nicodemus, this leader of the people, this one who is upright, cannot be born again of his own accord. If he can't, who can? I can't. And I know none of you can as well. You cannot bring about this birth from above, this being born again. And so Nicodemus responds in verse 9, because he actually gets it now. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. That is the response of every thinking person. If you are unable by anything you do to bring about this birth from above, how can that be? It is so natural. We, we naturally think, and even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you naturally think, I must be able to contribute something to being born again. And Jesus says, no. The spirit is like the wind, uncontrollable. But Nicodemus should have known better. He was a teacher of Israel. So look at verse 10 with me. Jesus said to him, I tell you what, this is again, how, do you, how to put someone off. Your Israel's teacher said Jesus... And you don't understand these very things because this teacher of Israel should have read his Old Testament. And in the Old Testament revelation of God, he would have seen that nothing that people could do could contribute to being part of the kingdom. God himself promises that he would come down and do it. You see, the summation of every believer's hope of sharing in God's kingdom can only be enacted by God himself. And here Jesus claims to be that one who is God who will enable it to happen. And so the man before Nicodemus is not just a rabbi, nor even a rabbi sent from God, but God who has come to enable being born again from above by water and the Spirit so that the kingdom of God might be might be entered but again how can that be and so Jesus picks it up again in verse 14 just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him Jesus is here reminding Nicodemus of something he would have known from his Old Testament. From Numbers chapter 21, where there the people of God, they were slaves in Egypt. God miraculously takes them out of Egypt. They are wandering through the wilderness, going to their promised land. And on the way to the promised land, even guided by God day and night, they do stupid things. 
and they, the men start having sex with the women of Moab. And God punishes them by sending in snakes who when they bite them, the people die. And so people of the, of the community of Israel have died. Others are at the point of death. They cry out to God to save them. And God says to Moses, the leader of the people, cast a snake out of bronze and put that bronze snake on a pole and lift the pole up. And even those people that have been bitten by the snakes, as they look to the snake on the pole, so they will be healed. What would you do if you were bitten by a snake? Local medical centre? Royal North Shore Hospital? That's what we would do, wouldn't we? But what does God do? He gives them this means by the bronze snake on the pole and they are healed. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you should have understood that. Because what happens to Jesus, the one who is before Nicodemus? He is lifted up on a pole. A pole the shape of a cross. As you look to him, you'll be saved. Just as the ones who were bitten by the snakes looked up on the pole and they were saved. So too those of us in need of desperate birth again look to the one who is lifted up on the pole and that's how you enter the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus' autobiography, if he were to write it, he wouldn't have written, I suspect, I met and spent time with a rabbi from God and we chewed the fat on religious things. No, it wouldn't have been that. It would have been, all I had to do was look to Jesus hung on a cross and I was born again and had access to eternal life. You still with me? I'm almost done. You still with me? Good. Because now I think John distills that incredible conversation into truths that we know so well. And in doing it, the story is not just now the interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus, but it's our story, the story of every one of us. Verse 16. For God's... You don't need, I don't need to read it, do I? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. Where does it start? God. Because the wind blows wherever it wills, because the spirit is uncontrollable, you can't do anything. Where must it start? It starts with God himself who promises to do it. And what does God do? God so loved the world. The word love is like the word being born again. We use it all the time and it means all sorts of different things in different settings. So I hope I love my wife in a way that is different to the way I love chocolate, in a way that is different to the way I love it when the Sydney Swans win. So often you've got to qualify the sort of love that you've got, don't you? So you say things like, I love you like, because love is just used everywhere. You see the word that qualifies the love of God here? See it there, verse 16? For God so loved the world. It's just the immensity, the outpouring of the love of God. And do you want to know how he so loved the world? What does it look like? He so loved the world that he gave. Not that he sent, not that he suggested, not that he advised, but he gave. It's that language of outpouring again, isn't it? And what did he outpour? That he gave his one and only son. I've got one son. I tell you what, I cannot think what I would give him up for you. Those of you that have got sons, 
What would you give your sons up for? Well, this is the son who from all of eternity, father and son had been in perfect relationship, never a fight. They were there as they created our planet, our solar system, our galaxy, our universe, always in perfect relationship. And he gave up that one and only son to be hung on that pole to die. Why would he do that? So that whoever believes in him. That word whoever, it's not that God gave his son up for the lovely, noble, upright people who attend St Stephen's or Chatswood, but whoever, no matter what you have done, no matter how black, no matter how much blood is on your hands, whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. The word I think we find hardest in John 3.16 is that six-letter word, perish. Because we don't like it very much. Perish is eternal destruction. And hear what Jesus says. If you do not have him, if you do not trust him, if you do not believe in him, you have eternal destruction. It's very sobering, isn't it? Our family, our neighbours, the people that we work for, and work with. Perish is the language there. So what verse 16 says, no wonder it's the most famous verse of the Bible. It is free, the escape from perishing and into eternal life. But it is not cheap. It costs God's son being hung on that pole. And so as you think about your autobiography, think about verses 19 and 20. This is the verdict that light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. That is the state of every human being perishing. No future, no hope, no eternity. Can I say in passing, because I don't know you, if you haven't yet given your life to Jesus... Please do it. There's nothing better that can ever happen to you than that. And so then, Nicodemus, us, our autobiography, what matters, is not about being famous, not about being the centre of attention. It's the story of your soul. It is where you place Jesus if you have no place for him at the centre of your autobiography, you know what the outcome is. If he is at the centre of your autobiography, you know too where the outcome is. We la laughed at Ashley Simpson and especially at Christopher Giccioni. But that is actually very similar to our autobiographies. There is nothing that we can do to spruce up our story further, except by talking about the one that we're related to. Our autobiography cannot be better than telling the story of what God in Jesus has done. And so the story that I hope my children will tell their yet unborn children of their grandfather is that Jesus loved him, nothing more because anything more would have to be less, wouldn't it? And so then, I want to finish with you uh, 
in thinking with you about what matters in life. I am saying to you, your autobiography is all about Jesus, but it's silly to say that nothing else matters. Family matters, surviving matters, my kids matter, and they deeply matter. When my kids are sick, that takes a huge amount of energy from me. When parents are frail, that takes a lot of energy from you, doesn't it? When unemployment looms, it is very big on your horizons. But there is one matter that matters not just for today or this week or this year, but for all of eternity. And it's one matter that puts everything else in its right place because it shows how transient everything else is. And that's the state of your soul. Here, here verse 18. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already because they haven't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See that? The little decision. Say it's the 14th of August 2016 that that you make it. That is to either trust and believe in Jesus or not trust and believe in Jesus. They seem like such small decisions, don't they? But see what Jesus is saying. As time unravels and unfolds, the decision to believe in Jesus leads to eternal life. The decision not to believe in Jesus, not to put him at the centre of the autobiography, leads to perishing and destruction. That's what's being said here. You see, what God does is divide the world into two camps, those who trust Jesus, those who don't, and the outcome is set. I want to say to you then, as your autobiography is being written, you tend to think, what can I contribute? What can I put in there? I want to say, if you put your trust in Jesus, it matters hugely not by what you do, but what he does with you. I'll tell you a couple of stories. There's a story of a man who decided that he would pray for his grandchildren. He had four grandsons. Three of them became very famous uh, Christian ministers. And there was one man, one of the four was the black sheep. That black sheep's name was James Dobson who many of you will know wrote those books, uh, those Christian psychology books that have been very helpful to other people. Why did they become like that? The grandfather prayed. There's a recently retired bishop of our diocese, uh, Wollongong, Reg Piper. When Reg was a young man, um, I asked him what was the effect of... um, I asked Reg, what have been the big effects on your life? He said, when I was a young man, I think I was still in high school... uh, I had to go to the toilet at four o'clock in the morning and so he had to walk from his bedroom through the kitchen out to the back to the toilet and he said my father worked in the coal mine so he was getting ready for work at four o'clock in the morning so I saw him that morning I was walking out to the toilet he was sitting in the kitchen at the table with a candle alight reading his bible. Reg said just seeing that shaped for me the importance of the word of God and the way it controls your life. That's very, very telling, isn't it? I've got a friend of mine who worked uh, as the chief financial officer for a small plastics company. He'd worked out that lots of people from the company were stealing from their boss. And so he told the boss. And for that, he was sacked. Uh, He was packing up his desk. And one of the other men said, I wish I could believe in something as much as you do to do that. And my friend said, you can. And so they started reading the Bible together and this other man gave his life to Jesus. Has eternal life, enters the kingdom of God. 
It is those little things. So as your autobiography is written, it's not about you, is it? It's about what God does through you as you just keep trusting and believing in him. That's the autobiography that needs to be written. I'll tell you, most people won't ever read an autobiography like that, but lives around the world are being transformed by the autobiography God is writing in those who are his. What a great honour it is to be a Christian, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Lord God, thank you that you so loved this world of ours and so love us that you gave your dearly beloved one and only Son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have eternal life. Thank you that he is the star of our story and thank you for that privilege that we have as we keep believing Jesus and living his way the way that you keep working out your story, your plans in the life of other people through what you permit us to be involved in. So keep doing that all the more in all of us, we pray. Amen.